Chapter Thirty of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Thirty. And the Devil may pipe to his own. Her ladyship's carriage was at the door, with her ladyship's coachman on the box. The late earl had had his people, and the countess her people, and it was only the inferior portion of the domestic polity which owned allegiance to both. Her ladyship's personal possessions, piano, books, bibelot of all kinds, were packed in readiness for conveyance to Ellerslie in a wagon from the home farm, and before nightfall every trace of Sibyl's existence would have vanished from the castle on the marches, and the new lord would reign in undisturbed possession. The doors were open, the footmen were waiting to assist in their mistress's departure, when Coralie came hastily out of the billiard-room and approached her aunt. Dear aunt, let me go with you. I did not know you were to leave today. I have only just heard about it, and you would have gone without even saying good-bye. I have been too unhappy to think of leave-takings, answered Sybil coldly, and I am not going far away, only to Ellerslie. Let me go with you. I won't bore you. I'll try not to be in your way. Come to the drawing-room, Cora. I shall be ready in five minutes. The first sentence was spoken as she moved towards the drawing-room door. The second sentence was addressed to the footman, who was carrying her wraps, and whose black silk hose were affording amusement to her ladyship's favorite collie, whose chain James was holding. Now, Cora, let us be plain with each other, said Sibyl, turning to her husband's niece, with no touch of softness in voice or face. What can you want of me? I can understand that I was useful to you when I took you from a lodging-house and an out-at-elbows father, but the whole aspect of your life has changed since last week. Your father is a rich man and the master of both the houses in which you have lived lately. But he is still my father, said Coralie, deadly pale against the dull blackness of her morning gown. The dull black was by no means becoming to Cora's sallow complexion and plain features. Never had her lack of beauty been more apparent than in this moment, when her lips were whitened by emotion, and her eyes haggard with weeping. "'Your place is here, Cora, not with me.' "'My place is under no roof that shelters my father. I will never live in the same house with him, never live where I must see him day by day. I have made up my mind about that. Yes, you are justified in and thinking meanly of me. I am a very Urquhart, a sordid, 
selfish creature. I like luxury. I revel in splendor and high living and fine clothes. I abhor poverty. I see no silver lining to the cloud that hangs over the shabby genteel, but for all that I would rather slave from morning till night among common drudges in a dressmaker's stuffy workroom than I would live in this house with my father. Is this so, Coralie? It is so. I have wronged you, said Sybil gravely. I have thought lately that you were your father's spy, set to watch my movements, full of malevolent curiosity. Oh, only think that I admire and love you, cried Coralie, her sallow face crimsoning. Whatever I may have been, whatever evil there is in my nature, I am honest and true today. I do respect you. I do love you. There have been hours in this house, in spite of all your goodness to me, when I have been envious of your fortune, your beauty, jealous of the worship your beauty won. But, struggling against sobs that almost choked her, that is over now. I am resigned to my fate, resigned to see love pass me by, resigned to ugliness and spinsterhood. I only want to live a clean life, to hold no companionship with a man I cannot respect as a father should be respected. Let me live with you, Lady Penrith. You shan't find me troublesome or boring. I will give you as much or as little of my society day by day as you like. I will never pester you with attentions you don't want. I am not without what people call resources. I can amuse myself and walk by myself and live by myself and under your roof. I shall be happy and at ease. What will your father say? Nothing that he can say will alter my determination never to live in this house. If you won't harbor me, I must earn my bread somehow and live by myself. Then you shall live with me. I will try to trust you and believe in you as I did a month ago. But remember that my life is a broken life. If you live with me, you must live secluded from society. A dreary existence for a girl of your age. No house parties in the country. No London season. In your father's present position, he can give you a life of pleasure and variety. As an only daughter and mistress of Penrith House, you will be a personage in London. You may marry well. No, no, I have made up my mind on that point. There shall be no more self-delusions. Let me share your solitude. Even if there were no other reason, it will be happy for me to drink that cup of humiliation which plain girls have to drink in the gay world, happier than sitting through dance after dance at the ball of the season, or hearing a crowd of young men whispering and tittering in the beautiful Mrs. Somebody's box next to my own, while I sit alone, pretending to listen to the opera. All other considerations apart, rustic seclusion is the happiest fate for an unattractive girl. You are fond of exaggerating your deficiencies, Cora, 
but I won't dispute that point now, replied Sibyl with a faint smile. You can follow me to Ellerslie if you like. If I like, I shall go there with rapture. May I go tonight, as soon as my goods and chattels are packed? Tonight, or tomorrow, as you please. Tonight, tonight, it cannot be too soon. You won't change your mind and wire me not to go to you. Cora, I am not that kind of person. No, no, you are as steadfast as a rock. You are all that is good and noble and womankind, and I will try to be worthy of your love. I mean you to love me, and trust me, and believe in me, as if I were of your own stainless race. They went out to the hall door together, and Cora stood on the steps with the wind blowing her hair off her large, intelligent forehead, till Lady Penrith's carriage vanished in the distance. It was half-past seven o'clock. Cora's packing was finished. Her trunks and possessions were all carried downstairs, to be removed with the second wagon-load of Lady Penrith's property, and Cora was dressed in her sealskin coat and hat, ready for departure in the dog-cart, which had been ordered to drive her to Ellerslie. It would be a long, dark drive, but Cora thought nothing of possible dangers or discomforts on the road. All she thought about just now was getting away from Calander Castle. The billiard-room door was open as she crossed the hall, and she could not resist going in for a last look round a room in which she had spent many pleasant hours. The men had been very gracious to her, even if she were in no wise attractive. They had laughed at her little jokes and flippant criticisms. They had taught her to handle her cue, and applauded her poor little breaks of ten or twelve, as if she had been a feminine Roberts. It had all been bright and gay in those October evenings with the shooters, when the logs had been piled on the hearth, and the little table for drink set out in the deep recess yonder. And she had been encouraged to mix brandies and sodas, and to make herself daintily useful, like an etherealized barmaid. That was all over now. There was no fire, and only a single oil lamp burnt dully over one end of the covered table. All was gloom and silence. Will men ever sit in this room and talk and laugh now my father is master here? She wondered. Are there any men on earth who can like him and trust him? The man of whom she was thinking met her on the threshold, and she turned to leave the room. Where are you going? he asked sharply. To Ellerslie. You should have enough manners to ask my leave. This is my house, and you are my daughter. You must pay no visits without consulting me beforehand. I forbid you to go to Ellerslie on any visit, long or short. She drew herself to her fullest height, and looked at him with all the scorn, a pert interrogative nose and thin, sensitive lips could express. This is not a question of visiting, 
Lord Penrith? She answered, emphasizing the title which sounded so strange a form of address from daughter to father. I am leaving this house for ever, and Ellerslie is the only home I have. You will do nothing of the kind, he answered fiercely with a savage grip of her wrist. She winced with pain, but looked defiantly at him even while her lip quivered. "'There is no use in that kind of thing,' she said. "'You're doing me bodily harm. Won't make any difference in my plan of life, unless you choose to shoot me,' she added very slowly, looking him full in the face. "'And so make sure of my obedience.' He dropped her wrist and stood looking at her, changed in one instant from bully to craven. "'Go your ways for a blatant hussy,' he said in his most brutal voice. "'You are not worth making a fuss about. Such a plain-headed one as you would be no ornament to your father's dinner-table.' He turned away and left her to take her departure without further interest. He had the castle to himself now, and in its loneliness it seemed to him about as cheerful as the castle at Inverness on the morning after King Duncan's bloody death. End of chapter 30